Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Jared Holt, a resident fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab at the Atlantic Council, and we are discussing the current state of the right, of the extreme and the far right. So what I wanted to do with this series, um, usually our series on the far right and extremism in general is led by academics and analysts, people who have done, you know, thousands of page, you know, works detailing the history, detailing the influencers. And you can go back and kind of listen to our examination of the Turner Diaries of Tom Metzger, James Mason, etc. What I wanted to do going forward is look at the right in the in, in sort of contemporary iteration. And it's kind of the nexus of the right of extremism and of politics, sort of circling around the question of what happens when we make extremism normal, when it sort of becomes part and parcel of politics. So in in the coming weeks, we're going to sort of look at that from multiple angles and and see where it leads us. But for today, um, we're sitting down with Jared Holt. So um, with that, uh, welcome to the show, Jared. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Um, I want to start off with kind of a world building question, which is, uh, we're sitting here, uh, April 14th, 2022. And where are we today? And kind of looking at the far and extreme, right? You know, um, you know, what is that definition that you're working from? And where you know, from that definition, where do we sort of conceptualize its its political position and its sort of placement in society now? Yeah, definite, definitely, uh, you know, I'm thinking the far right, uh, the extreme right being the excesses of conservative politics in the U.S. Um, that can take many forms. It could be white supremacist movements. It could be, uh, you know, more, I guess, quote-unquote, prim and proper hate groups. It could be uh, hyper-conspiratorial communities online. Um, The terms far-right and extremism are pretty broad. Um, I usually use that to describe my own work just so that it, you know, know, everything fits under a nice, tidy umbrella. Um, But today, I think, you know, those terms aren't necessarily... Uh, you know, useful to really convey the scale of threats that we're seeing today, um, both in a sense of uh, violent threats of of political violence, and also uh, threats to sort of the framework of the democratic process in the US, uh, like we saw on January 6th. Generally speaking, um, the this field of research has made a ton of gains. I, you know, have been doing this kind of work, first research, then investigative reporting for a number of years, and now I'm back in research land. Uh, and you know, we have more brilliant people on the task than ever before, um, but the stakes are also a bit higher. You know, the kind of questions that folks in the field today are facing are a bit stickier, a bit trickier to uh, answer to. Uh, one that you already mentioned, which is, you know, what happens when 
extremism is normalized or if these, you know, the animating ideologies of extremism start to become more mainstream when our elected officials are promoting bonkers conspiracy theories or major news outlets are, you know, like Tucker Carlson's going on Fox News and in front of millions of people doing great replacement theory. You know, how does all of that play in the mix? And does it change the way we talk about it? Or, or does it change the way that we try to communicate the the severity of, of consequences that could come from that? Um, so I, I am, I guess, uh, optimistic, optimistic with a healthy amount of skepticism, <laughs> as, as, as much as anyone should, uh, that we have, you know, tons of great people looking at this now, more hands on deck than I've ever seen. And, you know, a, a willingness and sort of this political moment and political capital to, to make some gains here. So with that, like, what do you see as the most kind of consequential event or trend sort of shaping this milieu of the right? Um, you know, I, I think for me, like the first thing that comes to my mind is like Trump, but <laughs> it, that, that seems like such an obvious answer. But um, what, what do you see as kind of, you know, you know, the event or a, a, a trend that's kind of shaping the right right now? Yeah, if we're talking about the really, really hardcore extreme right, the really violent right, I still tend to think that uh, the Christchurch massacre was, you know, one of the most consequential uh, things to happen in that sphere. It was, it served and still serves today for, you know, the type of neo-Nazi circles and accelerationist circles that uh, promote terrorism as a, you know, a potential solution to their political complaints um it, it is still like an aspirational uh target and it's still very uh freaky you know they they're still sharing videos and clips of uh that awful day uh but generally but like more broadly on the far right if, if we're gonna kind of use the wider paintbrush uh to encapsulate you know online internet poisoned uh, conspiracy people and, uh, you know, folks that have maybe very extreme attitudes, but uh, aren't necessarily, you know, getting ready to go out and commit some sort of mass atrocity. Um, folks that are still trying to work within the political system. Um, I, I think that Trump's election was definitely a huge watershed moment. Uh, I would agree with you there. It, it, I think the Trump era did a lot to kind of normalize uh, these parts of the far right that, uh, you know, had some stigma for a long time, and rightfully so, I would argue. And uh, But I also think the 2020 election uh, was huge for that section of the far right, because we saw it take on a more explicitly... Uh, anti-democratic or at least like democratic system skeptical uh, posture uh, and a whole host of options came up on the table um, you know we have folks on the far right uh, whether it's elected officials like Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, or 
you know, bloggers like Darren Beatty at Revolver floating out this idea of, you know, a cold civil war or a national divorce. And as much as we want to pretend that's fringe, it's, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene continues to be like a highly sought after endorsement and she's a huge fundraiser. And, you know, it's, it's not as obscure as we might think, uh, you, you know, the, the types of things that she says and the types of uh, rhetoric she uses to become that top fundraiser, I think is indicative of sort of the mainstreaming effect that uh, the 2020 election had in the broader base. Um, I also think it did a lot to kind of popularize among the right, uh, this idea that the whole world's one big conspiracy um, you know, a, a lot of Trump voters still, you know, to this day, polling shows that they don't believe the election was legitimate. And I, I think, you know, folks are so used to hearing that, that maybe we don't think that much about it. But uh, that's a pretty serious thing uh, to not think that an election in the country that you live in was conducted legitimacy, that the the results were overturned by this conspiracy of, you know, the deep state and Democrats and et cetera, voting, uh, ballot counting machine manufacturers. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a, a pretty wild belief. And I think can motivate people, uh, to, to go to some places that they wouldn't maybe go otherwise. Um, because if you think that the system has failed and corrupted to the point where these conspiracies are happening in plain sight and being executed successfully, I think that opens the door to a lot more stuff and other aspects of the ideology can make some gains. That's interesting because uh, the idea of normalizing a conspiracy theory is, is kind of fascinating to me because Trump comes into power in 2016 and then he, you know, my timeline's going to be off, but with him comes QAnon or Pizzagate then QAnon. And I, I'm kind of interested in, in looking at the idea of a conspiracy of, you know, Trump being the center of these conspiracy theories and those conspiracy theories kind of being used as a constituency building tool. I mean, <laughs> Is that is that accurate, or is there is there something something else that's going on that is kind of attracting people to to Trump as a political figure within the right? I think I think there's a lot of things attracting people to Trump on the right um, for that conspiratorial notion. I I think that um, you know the way that Trump campaigned in 2015 and the way that. Uh, he and his surrogates and the media and et cetera, his allies and the media uh, would talk about him as is kind of this like strong man, almost authoritarian uh, figure against all of these, you know, kind of vast conspiracy theories, whether it is to, you know, whether they believe, uh, you know, immigration at the Southern border is out of control on purpose or whether they believe that, uh, you know, there, there's, you know, these issues happening and wherever they may live that are, are all by design. 
Um, you know, Trump, I think, represented kind of an avatar uh, that people could allow themselves to believe would, you know, fight this stuff, which they may have seen previously as kind of unmovable. Um, it's something that was almost like bipartisan corrupt projects. Uh, Trump being the like classic scams guy uh, shows up. And, you know, lets them in on a scam and, you know, he's not going to play by the rules and he's going to go in and smash it up. Um, You know, by the end of it, I think the Trump presidency was, for the most part, just kind of like any other like neocon Republican uh, presidency policy wise, as far as like what he managed to pass and what stuck. Uh, That wasn't just like an executive order. Uh, that could, that could be rescind, rescinded uh, as soon as Biden got into office, but I think even today, a lot of his supporters still have that kind of mythos about Trump, uh, and, and I think that's you know really what is maybe at the core of a lot of people's attraction to it. And then he he kind of ended his his reign, so to speak, in 2020 with another conspiracy to stop the steal. So, which, which I'm kind of, kind of interested in and in kind of looking at the idea that, that stop the steal had enough traction and attracted enough people to it as a conspiracy that you inevitably, you kind of have one six. Um, if you could like walk us through, I mean, how much of, Stop the Steal was driven by Trump and how much of it was driven like as a sort of bottom up kind of a, a, a kind of popular meme and a popular movement. Like, where do you kind of see that separation of, you know, Trump driven conspiracy and then that kind of bottom up driven conspiracy theory? It was a bit of a mix. Um, and, and this is something that we're seeing a lot these days, which is there is you know, kind of a national establishing of message, um, but then a bunch of excitement uh, that comes from a a more sort of grassroots uh, phenomena. And they kind of meet in the middle and create, you know, whatever uh, kind of sense of panic is there that ends up motivating people and and driving conspiracy theories forward like that. Um, As far as Stop the Steal goes, very early in 2020, I want to say as far back as like February and March, I was listening to like Breitbart radio clips at Right Wing Watch, and you had Trump administration officials talking about the election, and they kept saying these lines that were kind of ominous, which is essentially, you know, they would say things to the effect of, if our elections are free and fair, Trump will win. Um, and that kind of has the uh, unspoken subtext of if he does not win, it will be because they aren't free and fair. So it seemed like this was kind of a, a long-term thinking uh, in the Trump administration, at least. Um, and Donald Trump's rhetoric out on the campaign trail, especially right up there towards the end, uh, would seem to reflect that too. Uh, I'm guessing they were starting to get some polls in-house that didn't look so good. At the same time, you had kind of the click around Roger Stone, uh, you know, being a longtime confidant of Trump and a uh, general kind of rat fucker in GOP politics. Uh, 
who has you know conducted stop the steel campaigns under the same name uh via either himself at the rnc thinking they were going to have to uh rescue trump's nomination from a you know super delegate uh or or a yeah i think super delegate delegate super delegate something like that um i forget the terminology but the idea that um you know the the folks at the rnc would sort of strong arm uh Trump's rightfully earned nomination and that they would have to step in to cause chaos and uh, make sure that Trump got the nomination. Uh, he, they didn't need to do that. Uh, Stone and his allies uh, came up with sort of the same idea in 2016, thinking that they were going to contest the election if Hillary Clinton won. Obviously, they didn't need to do that. In 2018, uh, they caused a bunch of chaos in Florida over gubernatorial races and some Senate races there, uh, you know, trying to interfere and chunk up and question uh, the counting of votes in those races. Uh, some of them were quite close. Uh, and, and then in 2020, we saw, you know, kind of the same cast of characters. You had folks like Jack Posobiec, uh, Ali Alexander, uh, folks that, you know, I unfortunately, I think I've become household names after January 6th, at least for, you know, brain poisoned homes like my own. And, uh, you know, at at the same time that the Trump administration was kind of throwing out these, uh, you know, subtextual uh, nods that they were going to contest if they lost uh, or protest if they lost, you had you know, this cast of characters ready to kick it in motion. And, you know, from the very onset of uh, the election, as soon as we found out that Joe Biden uh, was projected to be the winner, it all uh, started to kick and spin up, started having rallies, uh, all 50 states every weekend, and eventually it all culminated in January 6th. So it's kind of something that I find interesting um, before we really kind of deep dive into one six is that Roger Stone, uh, Manafort, like <laughs> when we talk about normalization, we, we kind of have to engage history. And these guys have been with the Republican Party, I think, I mean, I don't want to say before I was born, but at least, you know, for 20 some odd years. So in, in that sense, how do we sort of think about uh, looking at uh, Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, and then kind of comparing it to the newer sort of provocateurs like uh, Jack Prosibic, uh, Ali Alexander, and even Steve Bannon? What did, how do you compare those, those two groups? I mean, are they just kind of, kind of a continuum of the same sort of guy going through history? Or is there kind of a, would you put a difference between those those sort of two clusters? I, I mean, I think in large part, it is just kind of a continuum. Um, you know, the American political system will, I guess, continue or, or continues to reward uh, figures that step into those kind of roles willing to sling some mud and play dirty. Uh, so as long as that is happening there, I guess, will continue to be 
an incentive to do it. Um, but more broadly, I, I think, you know, as we rewind history, you know, the GOP for a long time has been contesting votes, um, trying to pass legislation that would make it more difficult for some people to vote. And uh, I, I mean, they've been doing that as long as I can remember uh, under under the banner of quote unquote voter integrity. And, uh, you know, I, I guess all of that is to say that a, a lot of what we are seeing today is not necessarily new, um, but it is like hooked up to a high speed <laughs> internet modem uh, w- without, you know, gatekeeping and what, you know, the typical societal forces that would maybe normally limit people's perception of it or their perception of its influence. Uh, and, and it feels a lot more visceral. It's like a little bit more raw today, if that makes sense. No, it, it does. And I think it's, it's kind of a problem that I've tried to wrap my head around is, is kind of on the, on the podcast and in, in my own sort of time, we dig into the history and it's like, okay, using race is nothing new. The anti-democratic impulse is nothing new. So dot, 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 what is new? And then it's like, oh, it's the scale and the online, online-edness. I don't know what, what, what word you would use. Um, but because it, it, it fascinates me to your, to your point and to some of your research, like 1-6 was completely planned, at least large parts of it were planned on Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, you can, I mean, as a researcher, did you, like, what were the kind of challenges in tracking that footprint and, and sort of timelining that out? Uh, it wasn't too much of a challenge. So part of what I do at my day job with the DFR lab now is just a, like, very vigorous daily monitoring regimen. And at the time, uh, I was specifically focused on uh, the 2020 election. Uh, we were looking, trying to uh, determine uh, the veracity or or the realisticness of uh, threats at polling locations, trying to get ahead of any of those in ways that uh, we uh, might felt like uh, we needed to. And then that continued after the election. So um, I, I was kind of looking really closely at these information environments among the far right, uh, as I was also looking for these threats, you know, going into the Oath Keepers chat rooms and reading the blogs they were reading and listening to the podcast they were sharing back and forth um, and trying to get a sense of kind of where they were at. And because I kept really meticulous notes uh, through that whole period and, and, continue to do that to this day uh putting together a timeline wasn't terribly difficult because i was able to kind of archive things and uh get copies of things in real time uh versus a challenge that uh is much more difficult which is you know if something bad happens then scrambling to kind of go back in time and like get things before people delete them or before platforms take them down or, or people get kicked off of things. Um, so it, 
so having like a daily uh, active accounting of what we were seeing uh, really helped us put together a, a really comprehensive timeline after January 6th. Was there anything that was shocking, something unexpected? I feel like um, when, you, when your daily is like just, you know, rigorous note keeping and, and, and documentation, it just, there's hardly any surprises anymore. Um, but was there anything when you were going sort of, you know, examining the 2020 election, was there something that really just popped out to you and was kind of like, oh my gosh, this is wild? I think some of the alliance building uh, was really curious to me. Anti-vax people suddenly being cool with like the Oath Keepers and like more moderate Republican crowds thinking, you know, the Proud Boys were chill uh, because when they watch Fox News, they see, you know, this looping riot footage and they think, oh, you know, these are our bodyguards against Antifa tonight, you know, and like sort of the bread breaking that was going on that is kind of one of the the main things I think that had stuck with me through that period of, you know, when I was talking to folks or that were we were working with on some of these issues, just being like something uh, kind of messed up is going on here because these people normally, you know, maybe they tolerate each other or look the other way, but like right now they seem to like really kind of be digging each other and like working together on things. Um, and that's never a good sign. <laughs> When when uh, you start having different like extremist groups or extremist movements, uh, you know, setting aside their differences and, and collaborating, uh, you get a lot more uh, numbers in the mix, a lot, and it becomes a lot less predictable and, you know, the risk of violence uh, shoots up. So I think that was kind of what was striking to me uh, from that period of time. Um, and then I... I guess today I just can continue to be both completely uh, like cynical uh, as a person. So not feeling like uh, shocked, um, but, but still being kind of surprised at where some of these, you know, ideologies and uh, talking points can crop up, you know, going like during the Supreme court uh nominees uh hearing uh, that just took place you know the talk of like pedophilia and grooming and stuff like i it's just wild to me that's like mainstream discourse now it's interesting like the the information ecosystem because it, it seems like on on and sort of one telling of the story like uh when we sat down with amanda moore uh, she made it kind of clear that, you know, you had the Q guys over here, you had the fash guys over here, they might interact, but in reality, they don't. And then you hear other stories, like how the Christian identity movement is slowly, you know, working its way into QAnon. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, when when we think about the information ecosystem being reflected into alliance building, you know, I, I guess the first question I have here is like, where, where does QAnon fall? Where does that sort of that constellation of conspiracy theorists fall? Is it, are people just making fun of them? Are they kind of the glue that binds everything else? Like, how do we, how do we understand Q's role in this, 
you know, how do we understand Q's role? And then how do we understand like more generalized conspiracy theories and, and conspiracy building? Yeah, I, I think for people outside of Q, even in the far right, it's kind of a mockery. Um, like if I'm on Telegram, like any given week, like there's this meme that uh, a bunch of the white nationalists like to post whenever there's like bad news or they're they're getting really uh, negative in their propaganda about the the world uh, falling down into the trenches. That it's like a old QAnon meme uh from one of the image boards that's like trump sitting there and it's like oh if you think this is crazy uh grab the popcorn you'll never guess what's next or something like that um so it it can be kind of a mockery in a lot of parts of the right i I think there's still that uniting uh mythos there though of trump being the sort of strong man figure that is going to know throw a middle finger to the rules to the you know normal polite uh political order to the establishment and uh you know tear stuff up and you know that is going to make things better somehow and i think that's kind of uniting um where QAnon kind of fits into the far right more broadly i think can be a bit harder to say um in its early days, the QAnon movement was a little bit more monolithic. There there were divisions even in the early days, but generally it was kind of all the same, or you had maybe like four or five different little factions, whether it's like the super religious guys or like the InfoWars crew or the people who are really into like numerology, um, you had a few different camps, but generally, like, it was all super focused on the Q drops. Uh, so it was all, they were all kind of talking about the same thing. Uh, but today, the QAnon movement is kind of in a post-Q state. Um, and I, I would argue that they were probably in a post-Q state uh, going into, like, January 6th uh, and going into the election because Q had been, like, MIA for a bit. Uh or like posting very sparsely and you know the movement kind of evolved to be this big tent conspiracy movement so today you've got like folks that are still part of these broader online networks of like QAnon belief uh you know influencers that used to very aggressively push QAnon content You've got, you know, the religious guys, you've got UFO guys, alternative medicine guys. That's a, a big one in the COVID era. Um, and you've just got so many different subsects and factions. There's like a million different on-ramps into this kind of uh, into the big tent that it, it's hard to really talk about it as a monolith anymore because, you can have portions of the Q movement that like bicker with each other or disagree fiercely. Um, Like Jordan Sather, who's a guy who spent a lot of time hyping up Q, uh, you know, was just constantly getting into it with other conspiracy theorists. Like this morning I was uh, like watching him just rip into this guy who had claimed uh, Anthony Fauci was arrested. Uh, And like that kind of, fighting uh amongst themselves i think 
uh, it makes it hard to to talk about the movement as one thing anymore. It's interesting the the concept of the on ramp into the big tent because it it seems like that on ramp for normies at least always seems to be a conspiracy theory. Am, am I correct? I mean, like I, I feel like it was first Q in the Trump years, then it's like CRT, then it's uh, Disney is grooming the children. It, it, it just seems like that on ramp into the far right for the normies, it's almost always conceptualized as a conspiracy theory or are, you know, do people come to the far right for other reasons? I mean, when I say other people, I I mean like, you know, nonviolent kind of somebody you would consider a normie or kind of a generally non-political person. Yeah, I think it's, it's like, distrust, I think, is sort of the uniting factor of these on-ramps. Because if we're going to distill these on-ramps down, mix them all in one giant pot, evaporate all the filler out of it, what you get is this belief that there is some kind of elite society uh, pulling the strings of the country, of the world, in ways that damage it that damage your quality of life that damage the you know whatever vision of you know the united states of america you may have uh and that you know this is being done in plain sight and society is crumbling etc uh which is not a belief that people who still have faith in society come to. Um, And and I think for the normie or the disengaged person, one of the, the, you know, precursors, maybe not an on-ramp in itself, but like a precursor of that is feeling kind of isolated or feeling like the the table of society is stacked against you and there's certainly like plenty of reasons in our modern world to feel that way whether it is like crushing student loan debt uh millennials not being able to afford to buy homes and like start families and stuff like they might normally um uh, wages stagnating i mean there's a whole host of like valid reasons there's also a whole host of like not valid reasons like uh, maybe people's personal racial anxieties or bigoted attitudes that play into the mix as well. Um, and, you know, at, I, I think all of that kind of contributes to this uh, sense that, you know, things are not as they seem. It's like a disillusionment. And like when people become disillusioned and cynical, I think, uh there's like a whole host of like conspiracy theory influencers or like uh online propagandists or or like media figures who are happy to come along and try to exploit that um so so in the same sense i think kind of a, a way to address it is a to address legitimate social ills and social disorder uh that exists in the u.s and also 
to make sure people have access to information that is quality and to do what we can to the extent that we can uh, to promote feelings of trust in that information because people are doing good and they feel good about, you know, what they're seeing, what they're hearing and, you know, can use that to make good choices and improve their life, et cetera. I, I think the the window or the, uh, I always abuse metaphors, but maybe the, I'll try this one. This, the slope becomes a bit less slippery. <laughs> I mean, what kind of fascinates me about, you know, the conspiracy theory is the on-ramp is how elite driven it is. So when I, when I think about conspiracy theories that are like pushing people into political action, I think like, you know, I think of like uh, Tucker Carlson or Alex Jones or Trump himself. So it seems like, you know, there is a lot of elite driven sort of pushing of those conspiracy theories, but at the same time, like you can't really separate out the political agency, the political motive and the grift, right? So Alex Jones is kind of the most famous example, but he was um, at least, you know, my understanding of it, he was making like hundreds of millions of dollars a year selling Mm -hmm. vitamins, you know, based on the fact that he was kind of constantly just pushing out conspiracy theories to his audience. But you know, so there's like two questions here. One is, you know, how do we think about elite driven sort of pushing out conspiracy theories? And then the second point to that is, you know, how much of that, how much of that conspiracy theory of pushing it out is, isn't necessarily genuine political belief, but rather related to a grift or so some sort of money making proposition? Um, I'll, I'll answer the second question first, which is, you know, I tend to think that whether it is genuine or not, like whether somebody like Tucker Carlson or Alex Jones really believes the things that they say to their viewers, um, I, I think is much less important than the effect that it has. Um, you know, these are audiences that you know, when you're, when you have such a huge platform and you're espousing those kind of conspiratorial beliefs or, or bigoted beliefs, uh, it's, you know, agitating the audience like that. It's kind of just like a numbers game. You know, of course, people who watch it, uh, are, are not brainwashed. I, you know, if I watch a Tucker Carlson clip, I don't turn it off and go, wow, you know what? I, I guess I just think something completely different than what I thought before now. Um, but so so there's always people's agency, of course, but the there's also a lot of audience priming that happens, you know, through the repetition of these conspiracy theories or repetitions of the premises of those theories. Uh, and also the audience that... Uh, Alex Jones cultivated, especially over the last five years. Um, And certainly folks like Tucker Carlson being on a partisan news channel have cultivated uh, are are just that they're hyper-partisan. So, you know, they have some, you know, beliefs or, or belief structure kind of baked into the audience. So if we're talking about that numbers game, uh, the, you know, probability 
uh, that it's going to hit ends up going higher. It's like playing, uh, you know, roulette. Um, and if you're trying to bet on red, if you start, you know, putting more red slots on the roulette wheel, your chances of hitting go higher. Um, and when it comes to conspiracy theories or extreme rhetoric, uh, the consequences are also kind of a numbers game. So I think that is kind of what seems so alarming about a lot of it is it's not just that, you know, Tucker Carlson is espousing a great replacement theory, but that great replacement theory has motivated a lot of really heinous violence in the past. And if we think even just 0.0001% of people uh, that hear that stuff are going to feel compelled to any kind of violent action, the more exposure it gets, it it just becomes a riskier situation. Um, So it's, you know, I kind of see them as sentiment builders and also like risk exploders. That's interesting because like you, you're now getting, we're now getting into the idea of, of agency and organization and like, you know, this might be a spicy take, but you know, what worries me isn't so much the 0.001, you know, percent that are going to, you know, go out and, and commit violence, but rather, you know, the type of person that would kind of, use Jones and Carlson as kind of informing their political beliefs. And then they go translate that to, you know, protesting at the the school board or um, voting for Marjorie Taylor Greene, or in in the most extreme sense, you know, participating in one six. So in that sense, you know, how do we understand, do we understand Jones and Carlson as as constituency builders, or maybe a more thematic question would be, you know, when does the political right come in and kind of take advantage of the Carlson and Jones audience for political means, for political reasons? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was getting to when I used the term sentiment building, right? There's, of course, the the risk of violence through, you know, whatever individual may come into contact with that stuff and believe it uh, whole hog. That's always going to be a risk. Um, and, and I think sort of answering the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, answering the uh, sentiment element there is a bit trickier and is kind of where I see this field of research, uh, you know, trying to wrap its head around what it looks like to talk about that and think about that uh, and, and, and then do something about it, which is that, uh, you know, if the broader constituency is getting loaded up with this stuff and then, you know, being compelled or called on to uh, participate in the political system, like what kind of negative or corrosive effect would that have? Um, and it's something that, you know, kind of becomes a more and more uh, urgent question, I think, especially as we've seen, you know, broader GOP causes really uh, not shy away from trying to tap into those constituencies and or rather, you know, kind of appealing directly to them, whether it is Uh, protests over the last week outside of uh, Disney properties because, you know, they 
believe or, or they're agitating that uh, Disney is pro pedophilia in some way, you know, you know, Pizzagate ish esque stuff, uh, or it's, you know, sending people uh, to yell at the school board or yell at the health board uh, with COVID conspiracy theories or, you know, all kinds of, you know, weird claims about racial uh, history education. And, you know, what that can mean, and we're starting to see some of those corrosive effects already, you know, whether it is people who were otherwise engaged in, you know, thankless uh, public service, like being on school boards or being on election boards, resigning in the wake of threats or in wake of just chaos and, you know, attention they didn't really sign up for and certainly don't get paid, paid enough for uh, if they get paid at all. And then, uh, you know, kind of folks who uh, think like this, you know, people who, you know, follow the doctrine of somebody like Steve Bannon uh, being very explicit about trying to secure positions on election boards. And, you know, I think it's going to be interesting, um, but certainly terrible uh, to, to see what the consequences of that uh, could be. I, I imagine, you know, the midterms will probably be a, a bit prickly as far as the consequences of that kind of thing playing out. And I, I certainly think 2024, uh, we're going to see it play out uh, very pronounced. But it's, uh, yeah, yeah, this, uh, you know, constituency building, it, it's kind of creating this like small army of totally pilled people uh, to go in and sort of junk things up. And, you know, if they're not, you know, actively cramming through harmful policy or whatever, at least junking up the systems uh, to where they can't, uh, you know, function as intended. So I'm taking this as the Boberts and the Greens and the Gosars of the world are the future. I mean, that's that's kind of scary. <laughs> well, I, I I don't know if it is the future overall. I I don't have a crystal ball, of course, that I can stare into. Otherwise, I would just like whip that puppy out and I'd say, "Hey, check it out. We're we're about to <laughs> look into the future here." Um, and I'd probably make a ton of money and you know have all kinds of influence. Everyone would want to get a glance in the crystal ball, but. I I don't think that the GOP has done really much of anything to dissuade uh, this kind of stuff. And it instead, you know, as I mentioned before, you have folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, people like Wendy Rogers, a very extreme uh, senator from in the Arizona Congress, you know, rising up to be some of the biggest stars in the party. So I I think, you know, having that happen without any sort of consequence, without any sort of meaningful pushback, uh, without a unified voice from that side of the aisle saying, no, actually, we're not going to do this, I think it's just going to beget more of it. And if the constituency is down with this stuff, they're going to vote that way, too. So I definitely think you know, we're probably going to see more Lauren Boberts and Marjorie Taylor Greens before we start seeing less of them. 
I, I do think that's it's kind of a struggle to explain to people that, like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a great fundraiser. Lauren Bur- Boebert is a great fundraiser. And it's just like, you know, despite their rhetoric, they're actually, it, it, it almost seems like they're a net benefit for the Republican Party. They're bringing in money. They're bringing in attention. Um, they're success it, stories. That, that, that they're is, success stories, yes. Yeah. That, that's wild. Um, I mean, like you, you refer, you referred to Wendy Rogers and if I remember correctly, she's the one who kind of gave the thumbs up to Nick Fuentes, the, yeah. mm-hmm. the racist guy. But I mean, that, that's kind of wild that, that, that interaction with, that seems to be like a direct interaction between an elected, you know, party member and the far right. Yeah, and she did get censured uh, by her colleagues in the Arizona Senate, which is a, a very damning finger wag, but doesn't actually like mean that she's out of office or anything. Um, so she did have like some consequence, but uh, it, it was more symbolic than anything, really, I think. I mean, like... I can't stop being fascinated by Green and Boebert because they're not effective. My understanding is that they're not effective House members. They're not writing legislation. They're not trying to improve the lives of their constituents. I mean, I, like I remember Boebert's kind of CPR, the Colorado Public Radio interview, and she was just like, just all over the place. It wasn't like she didn't feel like a typical politician where it's like, I want to do this for my constituents. I want to do, you know, improve my community. It was just like all over the place. And then a reiteration of conspiracies and memes. Um, So I guess like, you know, how do we sort of judge or conceptualize people like Green and Boebert and Gosar? Do we think of them as just vessels for conspiracy theories and memes, or do we have to actually regard them as real politicians, as people that we should expect would write laws, pass laws, make that sort of attempt, or they're just so hyper-partisan that that sort of thing doesn't really matter? Well, they're in office right now, um, you know, Gosar, Green, and Boebert, are all part of the House, um, which is very firmly Democrat majority. So, uh, you know, it in a way, it's almost like not really that productive for them to try to suggest uh, policy because it, you know, being who they are and being, you know, believing what they believe, uh, it's very unlikely that it would pass. Um, so instead, you get you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene seemingly every few weeks introducing articles of impeachment against uh, Joe Brandon or Joe Biden, whatever. But, uh, I, but you know, for the most part, they're just party line votes. Um, you know, there's some, I, I don't think they are even really terribly active on committees, but I do think we have to take them seriously. Um you know, if that power balance were to change in a Republican majority uh, did come into Congress, which it very well may uh, after the 2022 midterms, uh, you know, that is a, a open question still, um, you know, particularly with gerrymandering. 
and uh, you know district maps being recut in uh, some key places. So it's it, it's not unthinkable to think that you know folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert could very potentially have like a, a real vehicle to advance some stuff um, and rhetorically at least in the meantime uh, building up that sentiment and building kind of a space for other parts of government uh, controlled by people who are like-minded to uh, you know kind of push through a bunch of uh, bills that maybe they might not have been comfortable trying to push through you know five years ago uh, we're seeing a whole host of states getting really, really aggressive on the anti-abortion front. Uh, I mean, they've been they've been trying for a long time, but really, really going for it now. Same thing uh, with, you know, CRT bans, you know, using that as a vehicle to ban uh, certain literature or to, you know, kind of tighten up the, the squeeze on public education, which has been a long-term project. Um, so even if you know, they don't have this whole resume to their name, uh, they can still be effective political figures in non-traditional senses. Um, so it's, it's, I, I think it can seem a bit silly on its face. It's hard to like look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and not just like kind of, at least from my perspective, like kind of just like cringe and feel like kind of weird about it. Uh, and, but, you know, it's, it's not like what she's doing has no effect. She's not just, you know, screaming into the wind, um, you know, at the very, very least, she's part of a broader, uh, you know, information ecosystem, I guess you could say, uh, a, a sentiment ecosystem, a constituency, um, that is, uh, you know, moving the rhetoric forward and getting a ton of eyeballs on on that rhetoric and, you know, exposing more people and, and normalizing it. That's interesting to me that you you pointed out that, that you know, uh, she's successful in sort of the rhetoric and the sentiment, and we kind of can see that in state houses and in the, the House. But, you know, I, I'm thinking about the Senate and sort of how you know, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are kind of reproducing the rhetoric of, you know, okay, groomer or uh, the the claims of rampant, you know, enabling pedophilia or whatever. But, you know, is there kind of a limit or to a kind of a political failure to the sentiment, like as you, you kind of move up, right? So that it's, you know, to the Senate or to executive offices is there like a limit or a failing to this or is it just we have to kind of conceptualize it as you know the audience is ever expanding it just has to find the right moment to act um you know i i think as this becomes more normalized the audience kind of grows even if the audience isn't you know parroting this stuff and and repeating this stuff verbatim at least like being desensitized to it or you know picking up kind of the vibe of it uh and, and the more people that kind of pick up that vibe the more that politicians at higher levels i think are going to feel uh obligated or or to view it as politically expedient to appeal to that kind of vibe um 
but I don't know, man. It's uh, everything's on the table as far as I'm concerned. It's uh, we saw a lot of stuff in the last like five years of politics that people uh, didn't think they were going to see. And I don't think we're at the end of the story yet that at the end of this moment in American politics, Um, I hope it ends soon. It's kind of a a nerve wracking moment to be in. Uh, It's, it's a bit more contentious than I would like it to be. Uh, But it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think I, my general point of view is, kind of still that it's probably going to get stupider and badder uh, before it starts to get a whole lot better. I mean, there seems to be some positivity, right? So the Proud Boys, the prosecution against the Proud Boys and against uh, the Oath Keepers, Alex Jones, you know, being sued for hundreds of millions of dollars, the defamation, the Sandy Hook defamation suits. Um, But I mean, from your perspective, do you, you know, is there a glimmer of light? Is there a glimmer of hope? What, what sort of gives you hope here? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I guess it kind of goes back to what I was saying at the very start, which is that we have like more people and more political will and political capital to try to do something about these issues uh, now than any time that I've, I've been working on this stuff. You know, the first half of my career was, you know, kind of spent just trying to convince people that what I was covering and what I was writing about was actually important in the like national political picture. Um, and, and like, we kind of seem to get it now and, you know, treat it appropriate, like more appropriately now. It's certainly not perfect. Um, you know, I, I certainly wish there was kind of uh you know, more crosstalk because I, I don't think the Republican Party is like totally lost. And I think because, you know, that pushback I was talking about that I, I wish I saw more of, uh, you know, coming from leaders and voices in the Republican Party uh, is absent. I, I think it would be beneficial to kind of salvage what we can there and, and try to make amends where we can. And uh, you know, have an alternative message of like unity and like pro-democracy and inclusion and like have a, a better counter narrative to this stuff instead of just reacting to it all the time. Uh, but it's, it, I, I think there is a glimmer of hope though, because I, you know, I'm a firm believer in the idea that the arc of history bends towards justice. And I think we're starting to see it bend a bit. Um in that direction, I, I say it's going to get stupider and badder before it gets better, uh, because because I don't think like the arc has totally bent yet, and we're on the other side of that slope. Uh, but I, I do think tends things tend to go that way, and I also, you know, have to remind myself sometimes that you know this stuff, even though it's very loud, even though it is uh, not as obscure as we might want to think that it is all the time, uh, that it is, you know, being exposed to all these new people and more and more people are starting to think like that. As we talk today, it still is in the minority. 
more people don't believe this stuff than do believe this stuff. And, you know, in this moment, I think people care. I, I think people care enough. And I think if we can, you know, encourage people to become participants rather than bystanders, um, there's still a lot of hope for us. Interesting. So um, for the kind of next question, I want to switch footing and I kind of want to, it's, it's going to be very meta, but when covering the far right and the extremist right, how do we sort of cover it without being partisan? I know this, the whole, the, the previous 45 minutes has literally just been about the Republican party and its nexus with the extreme and far right. But, and now I'm asking you about uh, how do we, you know, not have it come off as partisan. I mean, and kind of the reason I ask is like, I think one of the big critiques of how the right is covered is the tendency to both sides, right? So I think mm-hmm. this is like the New York Times, like, you know, the critique of them is that you're both sizing the issue, you know, for the, for the sake of being even and even handed, you're giving equal time to, you know, an extremist sort of opinion or idea, but um, in your approach, you know, is it important to cover both sides or is it more, you know, you're going to cover one six, you're going to explain what happened. You're not going to go out and search for like a counter idea or counter opinion. How does this, I mean, how do you cover something that is partisan without being partisan, I guess, is the question. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it, it's triage. Like I certainly have my own, um, personal like moral vision and sense of right and wrong and that guides my work uh you know i have my own opinions on things of course but like when it comes down to to getting this work done um it's all triage to me you know if there was an explosion in like left-wing uh you know extreme left arsons or you know eco-terrorism or something then my work would take me there but for now uh where i sit you know this this what's happening on the american right i think is sort of the the predominant uh thing that worries me so it's where i have devoted uh my time in in this field for the most part so far and as far as being partisan you know i try to avoid that by just keeping it as literal as possible, showing people in their own words, not saying things that, you know, if somebody challenged me on them that I couldn't, you know, whip out a whole booklet of receipts to back up or at least to explain why, uh, you know, I had the take that I did. Uh, And I also, you know, again, to, to, Uh, loop it back to the very beginning you know we're we're talking about definitions uh being specific and being you know as literal as possible in the ways that we talk about this uh is also something that i try to push for and something that i try to exemplify in my own work so uh, talking about somebody like uh nick Fuentes, the white nationalist. You know, I, if I'm writing about him, it's not far right influencer 
Nick Fuentes. He certainly is far right, but really what he is is a white nationalist. Um, and, and there's a whole, you know, <laughs> plethora of, of things to cite of him and his own words explaining why that's true. Uh, so being specific, being literal, um, as far as both sides in, you know, it's, I, I, I don't try to draw equivalences because my philosophy is triage. You know, I'm looking for what I think is the biggest threat. Um, what, what demonstrates itself to be the biggest threat and act accordingly. You know, it's it, one day I, I may be, you know, the leading, uh, uh, you know, anarchist car bomber, uh, researcher, if things go that way, hopefully they don't, but, um, it's, you, you know, I, I kind of go where I see the threat and if people want to call me an activist or call me a partisan or a hack or whatever, that's their opinion. I'm going to keep doing the work that I do. I'm very proud of the work that I do. Um, and I think it, you know, most of it tends to hold up exceptionally well. Um, and it's, yeah, I, you know, tune out the haters or what, what's the, uh, there's like a Taylor Swift song, right? The haters going to hate something like that. Something like that. Um, I, I mean, to your point, like I find that in the production of, of the podcast, that's kind of what we've been doing is like, you know, the biggest threat, because I think like we've had comments where people have said like, why don't you look at the left? Why don't you look at these political figures? And it's like, well, you know, there isn't, 60 years of history, you know, and, you know, there's not this constant cycle of violence with the, with the left as it is with the right. And it's not as, you know, as threatening, it doesn't loom as large into our politics. Um, I also find like, in, in some ways, it's like when the few times that we've actually interviewed people from the right, it's been kind of weird. Like there's not this, there's like this urge to own the libs, I guess. I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like, it's very, it's like very opportunistic about owning the libs and not necessarily examining the consequences. Like, I mean, it's, it's contrarianism is what it is. Yeah. Like all of these like quote unquote Antifa experts, they're contrarians. Like you get them in a room and all they can talk about is the media won't cover this or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, let's talk about some history. You know, you want to talk about some anarchist history. I'm all ears, but like, this isn't what you're doing. Yeah. And it's just, it, it was so weird. Like I just, like for me coming from a kind of academic and investigation background, it was just kind of like, huh. It made me kind of like, it, it was kind of a new kind of guy to run into basically. And it was, it was fascinating. There, there, <laughs> we live in a universe of many guys to run. Into. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I think we, we've gone for about an hour, so I gotta, I have to ask you the legendary last question. Oh shit. Um, I don't know what this is. Oh oh no. (laughs) Um, so the legendary last question is, um, for you as the speaker, as the interviewee to give us the audience and the interviewer, something to chew on, something to think about, something to kind of a last word or a last thought that we can sort of take with us and and sort of think about uh, after the show is done. Oh, man. Um, 
yeah, I exposed myself for not doing the prep work here. Um, I would say here's something to to mull over. A a better future is totally possible. Um, it, it is entirely possible. Uh, people who don't want to see this stuff thrive are in the majority, and there are things that everyone can do. Like something that struck me watching all these school board protests is how many rooms that, you know, whatever, uh, you know, group of angry people showing up at these meetings, hooting and hollering with whatever, you know, claim they heard on Fox or saw on social media, uh, is that oftentimes they were kind of doing that by themselves in the room. Um, So, you know, kind of something that I would encourage people to think about is you know if you are not going to be a bystander here if you're if you're not gonna you know just kind of sit here and you know watch the train wobble on its tracks uh but think about doing something you know is it going to one of those school board meetings and you know just being the voice in the room that says hey actually most of us don't think this uh thanks for all your work you know whatever i don't I don't know what you would say, but is it, you know, getting active on a certain political issue that you care about? Is it, you know, trying to do what you can to encourage productive uh, conversations, especially when people disagree? Is it, you know, trying to intervene or, or talk to people or make sure that, you know, everybody's doing okay. And like, you know, if people are falling in the conspiracy world, you know, pulling them aside and, you know, asking them about it, that sort of thing, you know, it's just kind of doing what you can to be a better participant in society. Cause I think that's what we need right now. It's like a bunch, a bunch of people being better society members because we live in a, we live in a society. uh, Right. But, uh, so, so I would give that to chew on, uh, which is, you know, what would that look like for you? For me, it's doing research and trying to get that research into the hands of people that are, you know, making policy or in the hands of reporters that are, you know, covering things for larger audiences uh, and, and, you know, trying to shape it and inform things that way. Uh, what's it look like for you? Awesome. Wise words. Uh, that was Jared Holt. Uh, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Of course.